Hi, and welcome to the VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and I'm joined by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am uh, doing good. And Mr. Jason Diamond. Fantastic. So we have a bit of an original show for you this week. Uh, as we highlighted last week, we are going to be delving into Light and Magic, the uh, documentary series that was put out on Disney+, Plus. obviously showcasing the work of Industrial Light and Magic. Um, it's just such a brilliant opportunity to go back and discuss um, a, a period in time, because it is heavily, heavily focused on the beginning of the structure of ILM. Uh, and so many of the people that um, I guess we've interviewed at FX Guide, we will watch the work of, and some of us, Matt, have actually worked with uh, firsthand. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's one of these things where I heard about this sort of through the grapevine um, about a maybe a year and a half ago that this was something that was being talked about uh, and had maybe had already begun. Um, a friend uh, who was sort of in conversations with uh i think it was imagine films right and it, that was uh the production company and and i thought well that's a great idea you know like wow cool <laughs> that sounds really neat and i at one point had an email back and forth with one of the producers just because i was doing this interview show and i said well if there's anything i have that you want you're welcome to it and i you know there wasn't anything i had that they wanted i think what i'm doing is a little different than what they wound up doing um but uh you know it's I think the series itself, the documentary series is really uh, so exciting and so interesting. I, I personally found the first uh, four episodes really super gripping. Um, the last two episodes we can talk a little bit about later. I think I have, you know, some differing opinions because in some ways it coincides with my own time uh, there. So I have my own memories about that period. And then the last episode, I think more than anything um, <clears throat> to me, just, I think they, they wanted to include as much as they could about kind of, well, what's happening now and what does it look like in the future? But it felt a little rushed and there were parts of it that felt a little like, kind of like a commercial to me a little bit in the end. But I think overall, the first four episodes and the sort of background, the history, um, the insight, the interviews, the discussions around the unique culture um, of the company that I think is dictated in large part by the work itself, but also by, um, you know, the people there for sure. And the, the culture that they created, um, that part is so interesting and so exciting, I think. And I think it's really a unique um, picture and snapshot a historical snapshot of one of the most interesting and unique companies um in the movie business that i've ever you know heard about if i'd never worked there i think i would feel that way about it um i think it's really really fascinating it's a powerful um uh sort of depiction of what you can do uh with a certain group of people when they come together and they have um you know, a decent uh, set of resources and they are united in a shared goal and to bring people together from a host of different um, backgrounds and disciplines um, and to have it work, you know, mm. in its own strange way that it found a way to function and work eventually um, is really something it's, it's had it's difficult times and ups and downs, but um, <clears throat> yeah, those first, um, you know, four episodes in particular, I think are just so fascinating to any fan of movies. Um, certainly any fan of special effects, I think, or visual effects. It's so important that you see it. I mean, it's a, it's an education watching it. 
So Jason, I wanted to start by getting your impression of the directing of the documentary rather than focusing in on ILM itself, right? Just in terms of a TV show and a documentary. Um, because the director of this uh, six episodes is himself an incredibly significant filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, it's Lawrence Kasdan, who, I mean, if you didn't know the films he made, you should certainly know that he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and picked up where Lee Brackett left off on Empire Strikes Back. I mean, that's enough for anybody, much less, uh, you know, his... The Big Chill, Silverado, yeah, yeah. just like tons yeah. of other stuff. Yeah, myriad of films that he's either written or directed, you know, throughout cinematic uh, history. Uh, I mean, it's... It's really well constructed. I mean, it, I'm not sure it needs a lot of criticism from a from a filmmaking standpoint, but it's you know the thing I the thing I think I I echo everything Matt says. Um, although I never worked there, but I have the same uh, affinity and and certainly grew up uh, wanting to work there from a you know reading magazines as a six-year-old after seeing star wars and being like ah uh, yeah that's what i want to do for for my life uh and the thing i appreciate but appreciated about it most is the current uh nature of the interviews because we have a lot of historical interviews with people and things that i know um uh I, i'm sure the three of us have all seen probably everything that's ever been produced or released, all the books we all have probably and have <laughs> yeah. read them and know the story intimately watching it. Um, it's still fresh and exciting to see new footage or get current interviews from all the um, guys and gals that were working there. And, and quite frankly, especially Lucas, who I think over time gets a bit of a short shrift for being a curmudgeon and kind of a, uh, you know, not a good director and all this kind of stuff. But like, in reality, I think the story that this documentary tells is that none of this is possible without Lucas as the inspiration point. Because a lot of people like, you know, they make a they make a illusion, I think, uh, who somebody makes an illusion in the documentary, I think it's Favreau to Menlo Park and, uh, and Edison and all that. But in reality, what Lucas is is inventing is opportunity and inspiration, right? Certainly his successes prior to 1974, 75 financially allow him to take risks that he's willing to shoulder financially to allow things to happen that he may not get back. That is a that is a feat in and of itself in 1975 to shell a half a million dollars of your own money to start a company for your own usage that may never get a return. I mean, there's a lot of foresight in this. Um, and I think that that is over time, he's been maybe knocked off the pedestal he deserves um, in general. You can call him a director or call him a technologist or whatever. I think there is a bit of, you know, uh, wizardry that he wields by being able to put the right people in the right rooms. And they talk about even the documentary, like he, I forget the woman's name, but he, who who sculpted the creatures for the willow transformation you know Gene lucas Wolfie. went yeah lucas goes to london to see her work and asks her to go that like he's going to do that it's not like a headhunter it's not human resources he personally is seeking out some of this talent so i think that's 
the big takeaway. And of course, each each artist is a wizard in their own right, much less, you know, someone was an electrical engineer or mechanical engineer or something that you wouldn't think would have a a job in the movie industry in such an impact like Dykstra um, or any of those guys. And of course, they're the giants, right? And I, so that's what I took away from it um, ultimately. And I, I, I think it all comes back to having these older people's uh, um, recollections of now being able to see where everything went. And I'll, I will just add to what Matt said about the earlier days. I believe it's the egalitarian nature of the opportunities that were given that created the environment. And I think the ultimate on-screen representation for that, for me, that I've always felt emotionally by watching a film that came out of Lucasfilm or ILM is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Star Wars is awesome, but there's so much turmoil and, and like struggle up the hill making that film that you see it on the screen, but they're not having fun on the screen. You're seeing achievement on the screen. And I mean that in in the best possible way, but Mm -hmm. in Raiders and, and Spielberg says it, and he said it multiple times because we've probably all seen all the Raiders, you know, BTS and interviews and stuff that him and Lucas were at the point where they could make decisions on their own with nobody telling them what to do. And Lucas could bankroll it. And he had, the homies behind him to get anything done they wanted to do and raiders for me when you watch that film you see two guys having the most fun of their lives and it is reflecting off the screen to the viewer uh so, that's my diatribe yeah no 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 <laughs> so great. i i think we're gonna focus a lot about how great ilm is and that's for good reason right like it's everything right and i mean i been there multiple times. I didn't work there, but again, you know, been there and interviewed and stuff. And and it's just a thrill, right? Going to ILM at the Presidio or going back to the original Kerner Optical. But we'll get to that in a second. I just want to stick, if we can, though, on the documentary for a second. Yeah, of course. Not to just be too sycophantic. I do think that there's a couple of aspects that are worth noting. Firstly, this is a celebration of ILM. And I feel like it errs more on celebration than documentary because. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? But that's what it is, because there are a couple of kind of areas where uh, I think it's quite gritty and honest, but there are other areas that are a little bit kind of glossed over. Like, uh, to you, so again, not criticizing ILM or for that matter, how great the show is to watch, but like you would almost get the impression that a lot of the digital compositing and the stuff that ILM did was invented in ILM at digital compositing stage. And yeah. that isn't actually what happened. Like ILM did so many brilliant things, deservedly was at the forefront of so many areas. But you know, like uh, when they first put flames in, they called them uh, sabers, right? They didn't call mm-hmm. them flames because they didn't want to break the mystique that it was tech coming from ILM as far as I can understand. I mean, I don't know that firsthand, but it just felt like that. Um, and a lot of the LA production companies did spectacularly good work on, say, uh, Star Trek The Next Generation in a digital format at a lower resolution that had sort of developed the tools of digital. And that was led with people like Rob Legato and other, you know, huge, mm-hmm. great people. We've got an interview coming up on FX Guide with Dan Curry, who was central to all of that. And 
I'm taking nothing away from ILM, but like the reality is that ILM wasn't first to the uh, party on some of this stuff. But when you're watching the show, you sort of get the impression that they, in addition to all the other great stuff that they invented, they sort of invented all of that as well, right? And and I don't think that that's a deliberate misrepresentation. I think it's just more a celebration of what they did and not a documentary that's trying to piece together how that technology happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you're doing a celebration, you just don't bother mentioning those other things, right? But again... Um, I think that's a totally fair critique. The one thing I guess I would add yeah. to that too, though, that's kind of an interesting sort of industry thing that occurred when we start talking about digital sort of in the latter part of the, the documentary series. But when we start thinking and talking about digital, um, there was a period of time where, you know, there were a few software tools um, that were um, produced by, you know, uh, other parties, right? Other corp companies, corporations, like whether it was Soft Image, uh, early uh, versions of that, or Alias, um, or um, I think there's the Matador thing? in there, Parallax yeah. Matador, yeah, like some of those yeah. really early tools, and those were totally deployed and utilized at ILM. But the other thing that's really interesting, I think, in those early days of the transition into digital was the development in-house of a host of proprietary tools, right? And this became both like, you know, the saving grace, but also the Achilles heel for the artists who worked in a place like ILM or at Sony. This was the case too, I know, for a time and digital domain um, when they first started out was that you would have people creating and writing uh, secondary systems and tools that would allow for the communication between mm-hmm other systems or that would be a wholesale proprietary thing for pulling a piece out of one software and allowing you to do some kind of lighting or rendering or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. And those proprietary tools, you know, rarely in the case of, I I don't know if there are too many examples. I know, I think Scott Squires uh, wrote some tools, uh, Puffin with his Puffin software Mm -hmm. um, that became commercially available, but a lot of the tools that were written um, didn't leave the studio, right? They remained there and they became things that um, were utilized throughout um, several years early on in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And then, you know, it's only now that we see so many like really big, you know, turnkey solutions, like big software companies like Autodesk and, you know, who've collected so many different tools and resources in the foundry and, um, you know, uh, whoever, you know, so many different uh, places. And that's now kind of the stock and trade of so much of visual effects. So these much more artist-friendly tools, I think. Um, yeah, fewer, I, I, not, less of an emphasis on the proprietary stuff. I mean, there's Photoshop's highlighted. And mm-hmm. uh, as you say, Scott Squires, who, by the way, I really enjoyed your interview with Scott um, oh, on yeah, your thanks. podcast. Yeah, he's, he's so great. But, <laughs> though, though, yeah, I would have gone drilled in much harder on combustion. I loved that program. Um, but... Uh, so that that's all true, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, things like digital domain invented Nuke, which yeah. you know is now the back sort of cornerstone of uh, of feature film compositing. And and so, of course, as I'm saying, I'm not a criticism of ILM. I'm just pointing out that as a documentary, it's a celebration of ILM, and it does sure. somehow, I think, give you a little bit of an impression that um, it was all coming from from Norman. The other thing yeah. I would say is that. Just on terms of the weighting of the show, and again, I'm super sensitive to this, but it felt a little bit like, hey, we're going to emphasize the early days when it was pre-digital. Then we're going to 
emphasize that it was amazing that it went digital, but then like all of the digital innovation kind of gets crammed into like mm-hmm. one or one and a half apps. That's true. And I feel like as, as amazing as the early stuff was, um, I would have loved to have seen some of the latter. I, maybe there's a series two that's going to come yeah, out. Yeah, maybe I that's don't know, season, season two. Season two, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at, the moment, as it's, at the moment as it stands, I feel like you could have been doing sensationally brilliant work um, that ILM clearly was doing with a host of films because, you know, they've done so many. And it was very heavily weighted to kind of the Star Wars uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And you got a sense of that, I think, when they had that montage at the beginning, and I'm going to say of episode four or five, when they just had this spate, maybe episode three even, of, of uh, A-grade directors just going, this really impressed me, this really impressed yeah, yeah. me, this was amazing. And like the name dropping of that set of directors, that was just, you know, a wish list of like world's greatest kind of directors right now, uh, all just saying how much they admired ILM. And I was like, yeah, and they all made a lot of films, which aren't really getting a lot of uh, coverage in the um, in the documentary series. Now, that's me wanting more. I'm not <laughs> criticizing what was in you know, it. But I, it's, it is interesting. And having seen the spaz doc, uh, at South by Southwest, which takes a very different tack. Well, now, Jason, I'm going to get um, you to explain that because I don't know that everybody's going to be on board with uh, that. And I think it's a really important point we want to discuss. Yeah. So, so Steve, Steve Spaz Williams, who is highlighted, you know, I think pretty well in this, uh, for the amount of time he's given for his input, you know, him and Mark DePay, I think are given a pretty good, uh, uh, amount of time. Uh, in to showcase their work and their stuff. What's interesting to me, so I, so, so the big story was, you know, which I think probably most people listening to this will know, but the, the short, short story is, you know, Spaz, you know, they worked on uh, the Abyss T2 and then sort of the big show that everything came together on was Jurassic Park and how they sort of ambushed Kathy Kennedy and Spielberg and Murin with this looping playback of the dinosaur skeleton walking in the in the main playback sort of area where they're reviewing shots that's a story um and i think there's varying versions of it but in uh, a, a different filmmaker scott um what's his franklin what's his last name not franklin uh the director of spaz documentary that you know oh, scott liebrecht scott liebrecht sorry yeah um so he made a film about spaz that's more about him spaz as a person and his personal life and maybe you know his own personal issues like drinking uh issues and uh maybe behavior issues overall you know uh uh uh, anti uh authoritarian which we all kind of are in a little bit but maybe his to a detriment um that's the main focus but of course a lot of the focus of the documentary is how he felt kind of taken advantage of and and given the short stick short end of the stick at ilm which is I probably more his opinion than is fact, although I don't personally know the fact. And I know, Matt, you have an opinion on this. But interestingly, what I found, having seen that documentary and feeling fairly confident, it'll probably never come out. And if it does, it'll just it'll be a VOD thing that people happen across. Oh, it'll it'll Uh, come out. Yeah. No offense yeah. to Scott. Yeah. I just, it feels not like not theatrically, but it'll come out on yeah, yeah. Like Netflix or Hulu or something. Yeah. Like yeah. That. A VOD or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing that I took away from having seen that 
And knowing that at the end of that documentary, spoiler alert, Spaz goes to rehab and sort of gets his shit together, is that his appearance in this documentary, this series, it seems more self-reflective and more, uh, obviously he's given a parameter. He's not going to go ape shit in front of Kazdan and all the well, he's people, but it too. <laughs> is, he's edited, but having seen that doc, met him and per him and Mark DePay uh, and Scott at the screening and had nice conversations with them. It seems like maybe post that experience, he has changed his uh, opinion of, of maybe his responsibility in the, in the matters that he may have felt he had no responsibility in before, which I just thought was interesting having, having seen that doc. Um, yeah, I, I'd agree. Uh, I mean, I think they're interesting uh, in contrast to one another, sort of looking at at least just, mm -hmm. you know, the way he sort of talks about his experience and role. I mean, they're somewhat similar too, though. I, I guess, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a, maybe it's just a tonal thing that I picked up. Well, yeah. And if we're going to talk about like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to talk specifically about, you know, him or about that particular moment. No, in no, time it was just, I wasn't story, asking but, your, yeah. But I, I think one of the things that I would say was like, you know, I, I was there in the nineties and the early nineties and, um, you know, came just before Jurassic park was finished was when I started. So the, all, a lot of that stuff had already been taken place and they were heavily into like, you know, working on sequences and shots for the film. So it wasn't that the proof of concept stuff had already transpired by the time I arrived, but, um, <clears throat> but you so, know, heard so, all those. So the, sub, the subtext is they managed to finish Jurassic park because you went to ILM. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, not at all. I had almost nothing to do with Jurassic, but um, but uh, sure, I'll take that one. <laughs> but okay. um, I think one of the things that uh, you know, as a series for of the documentary, one of the one of my observations. So I watched this series, you know, excitedly and enjoyed it thoroughly through the whole thing. But I did feel like you know the fifth and sixth episode felt. I kind of kind of akin with what you're saying, Mike, they felt really compressed and like we were sort of mm -hmm. jamming a lot into this area. They did some interesting exploration about sort of the traditional artists transitioning to digital. And I thought that that was a really big deal when I was there. And it was really difficult for a lot of people. And a lot of people left the business. Um, but the people who were really talented, I mean, they do an interview with um uh, John Goodson, model maker, John Goodson and, mm -hmm. uh, Kim Smith, who's, uh, an amazing artist, um, and model maker as well. And they both, um, you know, were there when I was at ILM, I've interviewed both of them for, for my thing. And I mean, they're just the coolest people and they're both such gifted artists and so smart and so humble. Like they're not like, they don't have huge egos, you know, they're not like, even though they've done this, all this amazing stuff, they're the most down to earth, like just kind, amazing people. And uh, I think it's so neat hearing them talk and they talk about kind mm -hmm. of, they have a relationship, you know, and so they're kind of together. Right. And um, <clears throat> it's fun hearing them talk and talk about uh, the transition, like Kim makes the transition, starts going and working digitally, and she starts to see how this works. And then John talks about doing it and how he started to think in, you know, drop down menus and dream in that <laughs> way and stuff. And, you know, I think that's really fascinating and so interesting. And I, to me, those are the things that, about the transition to digital, at least in that culture at ILM that are so interesting, like bringing those people from that traditional universe into the digital world. And then all the other people that came in too, that were from totally other, you know, walks of life and other areas. I think the one thing that I thought about in the, the way the style changes 
because of the sort of central characters that they focus on in the transition to digital, mm -hmm. it, it, it made me think of, um, I had just watched that Woodstock 99 documentary, uh, which yeah. I don't know if you've seen that, but that <laughs> yeah. is the most horrifying thing. I mean, the, the ultimate disaster of, you know, they, they have a Woodstock 90 for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's on Netflix, but they have this Woodstock 99 where they have a new Woodstock, but it's all these like, you know, Limp Biscuit and all these like kind of hard, like more hard rock kind of bands. Right. And so it's this very testosterone, like kind of machismo kind of, um, uber manly kind of, um, narrative and it degrades into this kind of riotous disaster. Right. Um, and I think that for me, the, the early parts of the documentary series really focus on, I think a much larger sense of collaboration and of a more, an effort to, to kind of have a more almost egalitarian kind of, um, structure. Um, and there's a sort of harmonious, uh, quality, uh, to the, a lot of the work that gets done and people seem to be having a good time. And I think when we cut to that, new section it becomes the focus becomes individuals and we focus on just these individual people and it's more about me you know me 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 as opposed to like we and i think that's interesting um and i don't know if that's just my you know sort of very colored uh impression um but that was one of the things that i found challenging <laughs> in the series I got two questions for you. The second is going to loop back on that individuality thing and the the lack of structure early on. But firstly, I'm going to ask you, as somebody that was there, now talking about ILM, did you feel like the show captured the tone of what it was like to work there? Did it feel like that's the ILM I kind of remember? Because, you know, obviously there's history and then there's history from the people that are writing it. Well, from people I, that experienced a, it, lived it, how did you feel? I mean, I think that's a great question. Like, I, I think for the most part, yeah, like it did feel kind of like that. And I think to what Jason was saying earlier, I think one of the things that makes this such a stronger kind of, you know, documentary style is that you're talking with all the players who are still with us, who were there for many, many years, many decades, right? In, in most of the older uh, crowds cases. And I think the hindsight, um, you know, of looking back at something you did 20, 30 years ago, hindsight, you really do, uh, you know, if you're a, a nuanced, thoughtful, you know, relatively sensitive, emotionally aware <laughs> individual, which I think a lot of these people are, you can really look back through the lens of time and through the lens of your own life and experience and reflect on it in a way that, um, not in a just rose colored glasses kind of way, but in a way that really can, I think, draw out some of the core essential meaning of like, why was that culture sort of different? Why was that think, culture kind of unique? What brought that to the, to bear? And so I do feel like that part of it to me felt pretty real. I think Ken Ralston's quote kind of like signing off kind of bite does capture a lot of that, you know, because he's, he's being reflective and he's trying to, he says it doesn't feel real. Like it's, he's trying to understand how he was in the right place at the right time, surrounded by the people he was surrounded with that gave him the opportunities that he himself obviously took the ball and ran with as a talented individual. But, you know, uh, he's like, I worked on movies at 
we were working on movies. We didn't know people were going to be talking about these movies 30 years yeah. from now, right? Like, I yeah. mean, that's a, it's a, it's, it's pretty a very, special. Yeah. Dykstra right. even says the same thing. Like he's like, you know, you could argue Dykstra got screwed or whatever, you know, if you want well, to start parsing it. But I'm just saying, even he says like, I, it went down exactly the way it needed to, you know, they talk about Which that culture are, of, 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 uh, you know, people being given opportunity individuals mm -hmm. being given opportunity within the larger framework of the said goals of a given production. Yeah. And one of the most amazing things about working there in my professional work experience, now this was my first job out of college, so I didn't have any frame of reference to compare it to, but you were given opportunities. Me, I was given opportunities as a 22, 23 year old, like, you know, young college graduate, you know, like some kind of totally not very self-aware young punk kid. And I was given opportunities to pursue what I was interested in. Like, so that's the amazing. So I'm getting there, subjects I'm getting as boy genius gets to, to play well. <laughs> <laughs> the second question I want to ask you about, Matt, is because uh, I think the most moving, interestingly uh, documentary aspect of the whole thing was actually around John Dykstra. Um, so... Mm -hmm. In the series, for those who haven't seen it, there's a, a discussion, very, I think, quite open and kind of almost raw about the fact that John Dykstra was so instrumental in Star Wars. Uh, I'm going to call them by their numbers that they assign them four, obviously the first one, um, but was not invited to join ILM uh, for Up north. episode five. Yeah, north. And now I want to sit down once with John Dykstra on when they were making Godzilla, I was uh, there and we spent a day doing stuff. And then I, he and I sat out the backyard and chatted for a while. And he struck me as incredibly intelligent and, and in, you know, just sensationally, uh, how can I put this, sort of like visually aware, like he was aware when he was doing effects, what reality would be. He was aware of how the audience would perceive them. He was aware about what the physics would be. And then he was aware about the story. Like he's just really, and so I, I got nothing but admiration for him. But of course in the show, in the documentary, it points out that he sort of had this legendary role of leading the Star Wars team in a way that wasn't conducive to what you might call project management. And so from my reading of it, it was like, he's great to work with, but too hard to work with. And then if we didn't go up north, which he himself on camera kind of, it's just this enormous pause where you can see that it's still a bit raw. And he, and I don't know, I just found that like a quite, a, from a documentary point of view, like a really insightful and, and it felt very unfiltered piece of filmmaking. Yeah. What did you think, mm -hmm. Matt? Yeah, no, I would totally agree. And I think, um, that I think that that story, the John Dykstra narrative, then the way he shares that, um, as well as the other really powerful one for me personally was the Phil Tippett narrative, where he really kind of mm -hmm. he talks about sort of his own, um, I guess for lack of a better term, like mental health kind of struggles, yeah, you know, with depression right. and mm -hmm. stuff. And I yep. and I thought that that was really profound uh, because I actually think. Um, that's not uncommon, you know, in people who I think are drawn to work in, yeah. in this industry as a, as a, a maybe a, a, a slightly more introverted personality, not in all cases, but in some, and, um, you know, finding solace and comfort and joy in, uh, the generation and creation of that type of work, you know, it's kind of an obsessive compulsive 
um, kind of job working in visual effects. Yeah. You know, we joke about, you know, what, what pixel fucking, right. You know, it's kind of one of the terms mm -hmm. of art in the, in the business. And I think that, you know, those narratives to me felt really powerful. And then I think the way they draw that out too, with the, um, the sort of hiring of and the arrival very in the very early days at the Valgene um, facility in Southern California um, of Rose Degnan becoming sort of mm -hmm. this, you know, uh, you know, injection of, uh, you know, uh, an Structure. organized brain, you know, into the whole production mm -hmm. and somebody who could sort of think in a different way about how like, all right, well, we've got to get all this set up and organized in a very particular way. And, um, and I think her, so her narrative too, I think is really interesting. So Jason, imagine that I was executive producer on this, or we were doing season two and you were the director and whatever. I'd be saying to you, those moments that Matt just described, totally I thought were incredibly interesting and human. I, I didn't feel like I had those moments from say, the current supervisors working out who gets to work on which films or how the relationships with directors influence which supervisors got to do which projects or what it's like to work on a film and put your heart and soul into it. And it just be a dud of a film for no fault of ILMs. It's visually magnificent, but it's just yeah. kind of lame. And I don't know, Jason, did you feel like, I mean, I just didn't feel like I got those sort of things in the last two eps as it were i just i got them in the early eps i and, and i think there's a reason for that because while you're saying that i'm thinking about that there are two distinct camps of of i'll use the term employee just for global terms right but two distinct camps of employees there's we'll call them camp one which is like the og guys like dykstra like ralston you know all those guys Tippett, Murin. And some of them still work on things, but we'll call them, you know, OG camp one. You bet. They invented things that had never been done before. So their inspirations were merely the task at hand. And obviously they had historical reference. They all reference Harryhausen and, and things like that. But from a modern achievement standpoint, they are standing in an open field and someone says, make a forest and they have to figure out what a forest is. When you get to those, we'll call it the second generation, John Knoll and forward, you're getting to people who were inspired by group one, right? So it's a completely different mindset of, now they're, they're just as inventive, but you're now, you're now in second generation replication mode. And even now you, you're in third generation now. And I feel like there is a and I don't mean this disingenuously, there is a waning of one style and thought process and a growth of a new thought process, given that you're coming into a into an environment with a given set of tools. And of course, everybody writes software and you know, there's a lot of that stuff. I'm just saying, I think from the emotional standpoint, but it's hard to get that emotional uh, sort of those big emotional beats you get from camp okay. one. But, but picking up on that, two. Matt. Do you think that's that camp two thing is partly because it becomes such a enormous collaboration as opposed to what two or three people could do? Like by the time you get to, well, um, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say like Davy Jones, right? Like mm -hmm. just for me, spectacularly yeah. impressive in every respect, but like, that's, that's not two guys pulling it off, right? That's like a bunch of guys pulling it off. 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think you guys are both making really interesting points. And I, I think I, I, what I guess I drew out of it to maybe build on that some is just that, um, I think as a film, the early days, the old footage, the nature of it being this kind of very hands-on, there's a very tactile thing with all the, you know, all the models and the big, you know, uh, motion control camera systems, the creature stuff they were building, the the motion, um, the um, uh, stop motion animation work, the, mm-hmm. you know, the adats and the weird sort of practical things they're doing for um, Raiders, the melting face. I mean, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, right? Those are all the sort of visual effects of that sort of generation one era. And the nature of it is still highly collaborative, but it's a smaller team. Right. It's a smaller number mm-hmm. of people, but they're creating sort of this whole language of visual effects in, you know, modern cinema anyway, um, in, at that time. And then when the digital narrative comes into play within the context of the documentary, I think what the filmmakers do is rather than what you're suggesting, Mike, when we talk about how it is so collaborative on a big project mm-hmm. like a like a pirate's film or something, um, or any of these modern films, really. Uh, I think what they do is they sort of winnow it down and focus on these individual characters. And so they actually do this thing that feels like the antithesis of the nature of collaboration within the context of the film, because there are these, you know, kind of bombastic personalities uh, who uh, spin a great yarn. Right. And so that's, it becomes a great sort of um, inflection point in the narrative that uh, for a film, it's entertaining, right? A documentary is not the truth <laughs> by definition, right? Well, it's, sure. It's, sure. It is also a fictional film while it's well, based in truth, right? And, and, I, and, and just to repeat, I don't think what I was suggesting was, was like painting a negative picture of any of those groups. Oh, no, no. no but yeah. there is a, but there is to me, and even in the documentary, to as you point out, like whether it's truth or manipulated truth or whatever it is presented, well, it's, it's a, what's presented, right? It's a perspective, you know? yeah. And yeah, a perspective, which is manipulated truth. And <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad no. way. We all do it. It's our yeah. it's our profession. Uh but you know, you go from although it's kind of similar, you know, you're like Tippet goes, Oh, well, I I decided that I was gonna focus on this and then I just got it. And then you go to the guy who kind of dethrones Tippett in a lot of way to Spaz. And he's like, oh, well, I decided to sit in my after hours every night and do it until I got it. And he talks about the like, you know, slowing all the curves down on the mm-hmm. T-Rex by 20%. And it just gave it the physical weight. We always talk about, you know, gravity and all that kind of stuff. The mindset is the same. Yeah. It's just less tactile to the audience and the audience sees a guy hunched over a box with a screen. And when you look at Tippett, he's in there and he's like grabbing and moving. And I would argue the real crossover point for all of this is the DID because that is such a, you know, like Tippett gets dethroned. I'm sorry, DID? The dinosaur input device. Oh, okay. Yeah. On on Jurassic Park. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That, the concept at the time of that is the bridge that is the true bridge of camp one and camp two right so you have Tippett, it's like hey we're not doing your thing anymore and he's he's deflated and feels like he he's not gonna like have a job and then spielberg calls him up he's like no 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 you're the guy 
you just you just graduated like nine levels and you're a supervisor now and you and all your animators are going to use a, a digital encoder you know mechanically slash digitally encoded dinosaur to hand input all the the animation points into the computer for our guys to clean up and do what do whatever later to me that's like using that that focus and small collaborative nature of the hands-on thing passing the information on to the guys so, in the computer now i'd always can I just, just ask you just real quick anecdotally about the digital the dinosaur input device of course i'm and i'm going through the narrative of the yeah yeah no i think it's a brilliant it's a brilliant uh invention it's like a it's it makes so much sense right this tactile mm -hmm. physical input device you know like instead of a keyboard and a mouse you build a, a, a maquette that is driving you know the bones mm -hmm. and the whatever the animation joints um of the skeleton uh, for the animation my understanding though and i may be this may be wrong but my understanding was that they got it to kind of work and they futzed around with that's it that's what some, i was going to say really this is what it. <laughs> this is what I was going to say. And like, it's like I a great say, PR. It's a great story, but I don't exactly. know that it's, it's real. It's really good PR, but yeah. like they actually made a humanoid one, right, to sell where you could get this little guy that was like a biped and you would use him for inpainting character. And they just didn't sell because people yeah. didn't use them because they just didn't. And it was there were pivots because it had to have a, a something to hold it up and it would go through its hip yeah. and so it couldn't turn its hips properly and it just was like a really good idea on paper and a really good idea for pr and not actually like your go-to device and that and i again have no insider knowledge on this other than the fact you don't see them anymore you don't no. see them yeah you don't even see them like a, a year after they were and i think you know at the at the end of the but, day yeah. like you know even on jurassic i think the user interface for animation at least of soft homage like it wasn't that it wasn't that bad you know like there were ways once you started building tools and got things kind of working in there like you know that idea of having you know joints and bones uh for mm -hmm. a skinned character just ik um, stuff yeah yeah and that you're able then to like in the documentary like you mentioned like adjust animation curves and slip and slide mm -hmm. you know keyframes around like you know that interface uh isn't that hard to use and it's extremely fast and powerful you know like i mean fast yeah, you I, know not at the time I, well, it wasn't that fast but <laughs> it was as, it was as fast as you were going to get right i mean they, they're on exactly a sgi yeah, and, and i'm running that software it's like yeah yeah and i'm using and i'm using that that moment more for a reflective reflexive point in history yeah, yeah. uh in in that it is it is the physical in incarnation of that moment of a but don't you think that happens a lot with PR? Like you get something sure. that like just captures the imagination. But if you think about it right, you don't want a keyframe every frame, which is what a stop frame animator yeah. would do as they're moving <laughs> yeah. the legs, mm -hmm. right? You want keyframes at points that are going to be natural deceleration, acceleration points in a in a and it's like a but a conceptually you go, oh yeah, yeah, that's exactly what you want. And then reality mm -hmm. you go, well, yeah, but then I've got basically a point cloud that's that's got no temporal consistency and I have to somehow run smoothing curves through all of these points to try and work out. And it's just all a bit too hard really. And do I really have to do this? And I well yeah for the documentary <laughs> you do kind of thing, right? Um but I find that happens a lot in movies. Like you'll, they'll latch onto a thing where they'll go like, this was sure. really great. What we actually did was this. And then you talk to people behind the scenes, they went, yeah, actually we got rid of that completely and we just did it. But you know, it was good reference, but yeah. Uh, well, and yeah. I think the other thing that it serves both 
as a PR thing at the time when Jurassic came out, but how it also serves the documentary here as a as a as a de- as a narrative device, but also as a narrative an actual device, device yes. right? Is it? Yeah. It serves as a visual representation for an audience who doesn't really has never really spent any time in mm-hmm. you know an animation sure. tool That's set. What I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, but our can, audience, yeah, they can connect to, this podcast, to it. Yeah, <laughs> really know what's going on, right? I of think course. though, too, to get back to what Jason was saying about the Gen One and the Gen Two, I mean, I think that's actually a really awesome insight. That's so uh, I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but I think you're totally right. And I do think we're in an era where we're in Gen Three or even Gen Four of people who grew up and mm-hmm. you know their heroes were you know Mark Depay or or John Knoll or whatever, and which is exciting. That's so cool, or you know, oh, or yeah. maybe other people you know, that they met uh, Mm -hmm. or heard about or saw on television here and there, other supervisors. So it may sound like I'm a bit down on this, but I'm not. So just to prove a point, I'd like now to switch the conversation to full on Mm. fanboy (laughs) and (laughs) say that if we take everything I just read as true, uh, we just go to the other side of my brain for a second. My other side of my brain just adores ILM, just thinks it's magnificent. Like, I've visited ILM. Every time I visited ILM, I've desperately wanted to get to the ILM shop so I could buy merch, right? <laughs> like, just oh yeah, completely love it to death. I love talking to the guys there. I love the work that they do. I love visiting the Presidio. But we also were lucky enough with FX PhD to go back to Kerner Optical uh, and actually film there for a week with many of the team that split uh, from ILM that were in the original ILM and set up a um, a you know, shot back at the original Kerner Optical. And my good friend, Mr. Jason Diamond, was there with us for that. Do you want to explain what happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think, Mike, you called me or we were doing, uh, I think, was it, was it 10 years ago? It's a while. This is certainly a long time ago. Uh, anyway, uh, you told me it was happening. I think I asked uh, if I could come and you said yes, but only if you DP, uh, some of the VFX, you know, be a VFX DP. And I was like, uh, yeah, no shit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tell me when to show up. Uh, so, uh, I was armed with a trusty red and, um, was sort of the, I think we had, uh, Jeff and John were there. Danny Prince was there. Jim Godolik was there doing, doing and, and phantom stuff. And and that's yeah, I was getting to Scott okay. Squires, which I think I had met maybe a few times prior to that, but really got to know him well then and much more since. And uh, and is a, a prince of a prince of a guy, and just I absolute was stand up guy. Yeah, and I was blown away. So the exercise, this is stuck with me forever. And the, the exercise was Mike played the dumb client and said, <laughs> Hey, I have this plate I shot in on, on set and I have no measurements and we just didn't have time to do anything that you should have done. But I know that we shot it on this zoom lens <laughs> and this camera body, uh, Scott, we have, we're on a green screen stage and we have a car hanging uh, from, a, from a crane here inside and we need to drop the car to make it look like it falls on the guy in the plate. And the guy in the plate the way, standing in like a junkyard. Had, we actually had a real car cranked yes. up to the ceiling. Uh, yeah. We're not talking That's digital. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, a real car that we were going to, the, the exercise was, I need you to shoot the effects plate in front, but the camera's got to line up and we don't have any of that information. So can you line it up? And watching Scott talk his thought process out, A, we had the two feeds, so we were doing a live kind of slap comp. And then me working with Scott as to where the camera should go, what the focal length was, zooming in a little bit, zooming out, lining up the plates, and then dropping the car for real, uh, just <laughs> crashing in the set, and then doing the real comp and it being dead on nuts perfect where, where we ended up putting the camera was like, I'm not sure there's a bigger highlight for like a visual effects <laughs> kind of thing in my life. I've never been on a big, you know, super Hollywood uh, set from a visual effects standpoint. And uh, that was incredible. Well, this was a lot of special effects, right? Like we were deliberately well, yeah, doing of course. Like, we did zero explosions filming underneath mm -hmm. uh, pyro and the ceiling. We yeah. Had, uh, we had a guy there who was an armorist. So we, we were like, <laughs> Oh yeah, we had the Matt, Matt, machine guns. Matt, you're gonna you're gonna love this story, Matt. We're just such stupid. I'm an Australian. We don't have guns in my country, <laughs> and so so we were saying to this a guy came along with like the most amazing set of weapons, and it was all safe, right? It was all like done very very professionally, absolutely professionally. But my point was, me as a dumb Australian, not pretending to be the dumb client now, just being a dumb Australian, he was like, "What would you want to show? Oh, well, I'd like to film." in slow motion on Jason's red, all of the uh, cartridges dropping on the floor and bouncing and smoking. And he was like, yeah, no. And I was like, why not? And he goes, that only happens in movies. I mean, we can drop some if you put some like fake <laughs> yeah. smoke in them from, from my hand, but they're not going to come off a real machine gun. And I'm like, yeah. know, why not? And so he gets this machine gun and everyone was safe. And everyone was like, but John and Jeff and the other guys, I think, I don't know if you were, Jason, were way over on one side of the soundstage at Kerner Optical. I was we behind the, the other... guy with the gun. Yeah, I was on oh, the yeah. gun side. You were, with, you were with me with the guns, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so we're standing next to the gun with earmuffs on because it's going to be really loud. And they start firing this machine gun, which is literally a machine gun. And the bullets are raining on the guys on the other side of the studio because they just eject that far. Yeah, it's and like 40 this, feet. The, the <laughs> idea that the they casings, would drop at your yeah. Yeah, casings. The idea that casings yeah. would drop at your feet was just so naive and stupid. And then every time we'd come up with something, we'd like, hold the pistol sideways. Yeah, if you do that, you'll go blind because it'll hit you they in the face. They drop at someone like, else's <laughs> feet really far away. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It was just, there were so many like, oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, anyways, and yeah, I mentioned that this. Was, uh, yeah, go ahead. That was, I was just going to say, like, it for me was the, the most – uh, fanboy experience. And we were trying to be doing it for training reasons, but to you go know, back in time to physical stuff like that. Uh, yeah. And I will say we did get a tour of the facility. I think after a lot of the people left, I think me, you, Mike, and like uh, maybe Jim and like, there's a, a small amount of people. We kind of got a tour around the whole facility more than we were just using. And we went down and they're like, Oh, here's spaz. Here's the pit. Like we went down there. It still smelled like pee. And, uh, no, no, the one and, for me was they went upstairs and they said, this little space here, which like, I swear to God was like, you know, what would be a lobby, an yeah. entrance hallway because yeah. this is where Pixar was born. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, it's hallowed ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's a bunch of cardboard boxes yep. back there. Yeah. It was yeah. in the, the C screening room, uh, back area. And yep. then we went over, we went over to where you and Stu, uh, used to sit over there and we saw everybody's like your guys uh drawings on the wall stubaka and the whole 
the whole thing. And I mean, uh, it's funny, like the, the Kerner facility, you know, now they're in the Presidio in San Francisco and this beautiful building, yeah, uh, yeah. buildings yeah. Um, that are, you know, totally designed oh, to sort of magnificent. be part of that, you know, kind of, that's what they were built for. Right. But the Kerner facility is this totally rundown, schlubby <laughs> industrial park. But, I, you know, yeah. you guys are talking about working on the stage and doing that project that you were there with Scott and those guys. And I mean, that's so cool. And, you know, it makes me think <clears throat> during my like roughly eight years or so uh, at ILM, you know, I remember coming and one of the first projects they were working on was the um, film Fire in the Sky with D.B. Sweeney oh, yeah. about alien abduction. And they had built that in movie. that main stage this giant a set that was like a huge sort of cylinder inside the alien spacecraft. And it was tilted up with the opening going out the stage door. So at a certain time of day, they could get the sun coming right in there and get oh, this nice. amazing light, raking light across the sort of angled, up angled. Um, and they did wire work up there. And it was such an amazing uh, structure. And then, you know, they crashed, crashed uh, the saucer section of the next generation, uh, John Noel. Mm supervising that for one of the Star Trek Next Generation films out on the back lot. We shot plates uh, for uh, A New Hope on the stage, some on the back lot that were then comped into, uh, you know, shots for the re-release of Star Wars. They did, excuse me, they built a small little mountain and uh, an amazing um, prop-driven airplane model that was probably, I don't know what scale, but it was really big and crashed it into the top of this mountain for the movie Alive about the soccer team. Oh, yeah. It's stuck, you know, and all this stuff is going on. Like there's stuff happening all the time. There's multiple shows so, being worked on. There's physical so effects So how did you happening. do any work? How did you literally get me work done? I <laughs> well, mean, you know, it's if funny. I was you, I'd have just been like, I've gone out for lunch and they're filming and I never came back. I just well, stood in the car park. Well, there were days where you would want to go out and see what was happening because they would, yeah. they would, we had a paging system. That's the whole kind of 8111, 8112, yeah. 8113. Mm -hmm. And they would page, you know, uh, Mike Seymour, 8111, please, Mike Seymour, 8111. And you would go to your a phone in your area and you dial that number and pick it up. And uh, so constantly people were being paged and they would page loud boom on the main stage, loud boom on the right. main stage. And you'd be in another part of the complex and you'd hear this. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> and they would have blown <laughs> something up, you know? And so the, there was all kinds of stuff like that that would be happening, but it didn't happen every day, right? I mean, they were peak times yeah. for each production where something would happen. And sometimes you wouldn't even know if you, if it wasn't your show and you were working on another show, you might not know that there was something like that happening until you walk, you know, across the quad to go meet a friend or go pick something up or some reference that mm -hmm. you needed. And you might see, oh, they're going to do that, I think, today. Maybe I'll have to come out and check that out at lunch and see what's happening. Or you go talk to one of the stage people and say, hey, what, when are you guys going to do this? And I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we've all been on set where you're going to film something. Like we smashed a helicopter in Queensland, right? And like you mm -hmm. like you just stand there forever and nothing happens, right? right. So, <laughs> it's like yeah. a really long time before the, the couple of seconds of excitement. But um, just to quickly do a plug. So when Matt was mentioning 8111 there, and that is a reference to the name of his podcast about his uh, colleagues and time at ILM. And so we've mentioned it before on here, but uh, if you look it up, uh, look it up as um, that. Yeah, a lot one, of the uh, people that are in the documentary are in there. And I think the thing that, uh, the one thing I would say about the documentary and about working at ILM just in general 
and they say this in the documentary, it's the people, it's the people that make that place mm -hmm. what it is. Mm -hmm. It's the people that have always made that place what it is. The films, you know, and the money from the films allow that kind of creative freedom and opportunity to yeah. occur. But that's, but I think, you know, the documentary, it's important to remember, it centrally focuses on certain people because it has to, because it's a limited yeah, series, course. right? But there yeah. are literally thousands of people at this point who've 100%. gone through ILM and all of them, I think, you know, uh, with, uh, without exception, all have a really fascinating and interesting story to share and tell, you know, of so, their so let time me ask and experience you, there. Let me ask you on that. What is somebody that I wouldn't have heard of that's not obviously the top of the line supervisor type people that you've interviewed on your podcast that would be like a remarkable story, but for someone who wasn't, you know, a Scott Squires or a John Knoll level kind of, there must be people that you've talked to that had amazing I mean, stories. Yeah, about. there's there's so, so many. You got I a mean, favorite? Oh, not a favorite, but I mean, I think or there's a, so many fascinating stories like Rod Bogart. Yeah, uh, he okay. uh, helped develop the EXR standard and his initials mm. are RGB, which is really cool. Um, <laughs> but he's brilliant. Uh, you know, Dan Goldman, who um, was an intern, the first intern in the computer graphics division, who has uh, helped develop a host of tools. He went on later in his career to work at Adobe and help develop a, a tool called Content Aware Fill. Now mm -hmm. he's working at Google, working on Project Starline. I mean, brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, Josh Pines, who helped build the oh, scanner yeah. at ILM. Mm -hmm. and he's now working at Technicolor. Uh, a, mm -hmm. a crazy, like amazing guy. Went to Cooper Union, was really interested in electronic music and signal processing, and just kind of fell into computer graphics. Crazy, wild story. People like Kim Smith, who's in the documentary, but an amazing artist, like a really gifted, talented sculptor and painter. Um, on top of everything else that uh, she's done in terms of model making. Um, Trish Schutz uh, Kraus, who is an animator who came from Canada and worked on Casper and several other films, a really great animator, eventually left the business and became a nurse, an emergency room nurse. And now she was a surgical nurse. And it's just fascinating, wow. like the lives of these people. And they're all so amazing in the time that I worked with them at ILM but they've all gone on to do so many amazing things since, you know. So I got two questions for you. One is a fanboy. So do you have a bunch of, uh, or an unrivaled collection of crew t-shirts or, you know, <laughs> crew hats or something from your time there? You know, I have a few things. Um, Souvenirs? I had, I used to have more. And, okay. you know, like everything that happens in life when you move, I eventually, when I left ILM, I moved to New York City. And in moving from San Francisco to New York, it was like, do I take all this stuff with me? Or should I just give it away or sell it or, you know, see who wants it? And so a there lot was of no my eBay at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of my t-shirt, a lot of my t-shirts, crew shirts, crew gear were given away. I do have this ridiculous ILM letterman's jacket that has the magician logo on the oh, back. It's so nice ugly. I would never wear it, No, you <laughs> but it's kind of cool to No, it's, it's, you shouldn't. <laughs> no okay. Should. My second question. But it's kind of cool, question. you know? Lots yeah. Of my second question is, uh, yeah, the pins are great. Uh, okay. This is facetious, but here you go. Right. If ILM was so bloody great, why the hell did you leave? I mean, for me, it's really pretty simple. Like I started there as a 22 year old kid just out of school. I worked there for eight years and change, I think. And 
I had seen the work of an artist that I really liked and I wanted to pursue something where I wasn't the like low man on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. Like I was a compositor, you know, like working on shows. I mean, it was, it was super awesome, but that was the only job I'd ever had as a young person. I was making really good money and having a, you know, single living in my cool apartment in San Francisco, driving into work every day. And I loved my job. But I definitely felt like I needed to do more things. There were more things that I wanted to accomplish for myself. And one of them was going to work for uh, this artist, Matthew Barney, um, and helping him make these big, weird art movies that wound up in the Guggenheim Museum in 2002, a big show. That's awesome. And it led mm -hmm. to getting to work with like Bjork and I got to work with Madonna, you know, like weird, weird projects mm -hmm. that I got to do in New York. And, um, and then I got to work at all, all these other companies since then, um, because the people that I worked with at ILM have been seeded throughout the industry. And I think in a lot of ways, one of the great things yep. about that culture that they talk about at ILM, the company culture, which I, you know, I don't know if it exists in the same way that it did when I was there, but I hope it does, you know, and I, I would imagine some of that DNA is kind of embedded in the philosophy of the place, but having seeded all these people into the industry, I think there are many places where some of that DNA gets spread around. And of course, the individual companies that have sprang up from other people have their own kind of unique culture and DNA too. So I think, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's really, say, it's an industry yeah. uh, where people get to sort of, yeah, we, people move around and get to go, kind of go from place to place too. I would say that it definitely still has a culture, sort of a different culture, obviously, because there's a legacy element, but uh, notwithstanding COVID, I used to visit regularly and do interviews and sit down with people. And and quite frankly, that in itself was a joy, right? Like sitting down with Dennis Murin or whatever, or John Knoll or whoever. Um, and also a lot of the other supervisors that weren't in the documentary and mm -hmm. just chatting with them. And then the cameras would switch off and we'd still be chatting and yeah. goofing off and talking. And they're always to a man and to a woman, I shouldn't say a man, to a person, they were gener or are generous and uh, enthusiastic and keen to share and, and as you said, without ego and without like, you know, I think the thing that, that ILM has is uh, like an attitude that's always had, right, which is to a certain extent they're servicing the story or the film. Mm -hmm. So in a sense internally they're not servicing their own careers so much as they're servicing like an ILM. Like it's, it's a just feels like, you know, that everyone's out to not make sort of a big name for themselves so much as make well, a, yeah, visual effects a is a, it's a service industry, you know, what, mm -hmm. what we do is provide a service. We aren't uh, necessarily the progenitors of uh, original content, although in terms of story content or character content, although there's, you know, things like Pixar and, and maybe some uh, studios when they produce uh, films, it's interesting to think about when we talk to uh the guys who did love death and robots, you know, like mm -hmm. how's that, how's that structured? That's a different thing. That's what's so exciting about, you know, that kind of stuff too, where it's people who come from an effects background, but also a filmmaking background, but then kind of combining forces and getting an opportunity to produce was, content too. I, I was intrigued. I, I was expecting to see Fincher in there briefly because he, he was, you know, worked at ILM as a, for a very uh, short time, yeah, a short in period the, of time. But you yeah. know, you think they'd squeeze him in there for Jedi, but even his use of photogrammetry in Fight Club, like, is, you know, um, granted, I don't think ILM did that, but you know, like, 
using use people who themselves would become you know slightly groundbreaking in in approaches and other things they want to do even i remember years ago i think it was like 2000 or whatever it is when requiem for a dream came out and i would watch the dvd like making of kind of stuff they had and it's like aronofsky and his and his buddies like going to do their audio mix at skywalker ranch and like you know with their little handy cams like filming like oh shit, we're at skywalker ranch you know like you know, it's, it, sure. it is a resonant, it is a resonant thing yeah. that yeah. I think, I a mean, lot, you know, makes people want to create just to, just to be able to, to go there and use their I services. mean, look, there are so many people that you could have put in that documentary, like Kim yeah, Labrera's work, at, Kim Labrera's work with ILM, uh, the gaming stuff, the, yeah. the X-Lab stuff that, uh, mm -hmm. that happened. Yeah, LucasArts, like yeah. Oh, LucasArts, yeah, there's a ton of stuff, right? Um, and also I've interviewed a few people like Richard Edlund, people that like have just, you know, that were in the show that, and we've sat down with them and like, we've recorded two hours with just one interview. Right. And we had to cut it down to like an hour, but in an hour mm -hmm. for just one person, it still felt like we were killing so much good stuff. Um, the fact that they had these people, they must've had, you know, 15 times that per person per whatever episode. I mean, the amount of material that you would have, because there are so many stories and so many really, really great things. So I do think they've done a good job. Can I also do a shout out, by the way, to, to Disney and also in particular ILM's publicity department. And as, as is true actually of, of a lot of the big facilities, publicity departments, because these guys get no love, but they mm -hmm. do so much work in collating this material and, and acting almost like a I would almost call like a digital librarian to bring mm -hmm. together because an archivist. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And also they do a lot of that for presentations at SIDGRAPH, which in absolutely no way is a sales marketing thing. I mean, maybe you could argue it makes you want to mm. go work there, but like they did that already. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a, there's an enormous amount of work that goes into these guys, Greg at ILM and like David yeah, Ware and like Greg's these guys, great. Yeah. but whoever these guys, they just, and they, they are completely not going to be in front of the camera. They're yeah. not going to be, but they, I think, facilitated in this documentary such a wealth of really interesting material. Like there were shots in there that clearly what had happened is that somebody had gone and taken a shot and then they'd done a new documentary visual effect to show mm -hmm. how that became from this to this kind of thing, right? So they transitioned in ways that never would have been you know, we could play a clip and then play another clip, but for the audience to watch this documentary on Disney Plus, they had to. So there's kind of a level of artistry, of curation, and of attention mm -hmm. to detail to be able to explain how these bits went together in this documentary. And pulling that material, I mean, oh my God. Yeah, it's a heroic effort. Well, and so it's away a, from the, what they'd film, yeah, just the. It, the PR people too, like, I mean, yeah, the, it, I think what you're saying about PR, it's totally true. Like, and the previous heads of PR, like in the days of uh, the Kerner facility, and I guess part of the the Presidio, Miles Perkins. Um, and, yeah, yeah, I know uh, Miles. Miles is great, yeah, great guy. Ellen, Ellen Pasternak, and I've, I've interviewed both of them, and they're both like, you know, just the coolest, like also like yeah. kind of e egoless people who yep. love mm -hmm. what they do, you know, and Miles, and Miles is, now is at, at Epic, Epic now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they're doing a great job. And when you want to get a talk happening or you want to have some kind of documentary or whatever, like, I mean, obviously you're not going to, you know, get the senior sort of supervisors to spend time pulling all that material. You have to have people that are respectful 
knowledgeable and knowledgeable across almost every part of the spectrum of the stuff that somewhere like ILM is doing to be able to go, oh, okay, we can bring these together and these elements can come here. And that's what opened it up for me. I just watching it, there were times where there were shots and I've gone, oh, that's a really nice transition to explain to somebody, you know, how that visual effect kind of worked. Totally. And I was thinking, yeah. I wonder, I wonder who the visual effects team was that did the visual effects about the visual for the effects. documentary. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. some great well, animations in there, like yeah, in a, yeah, of a motion control camera and how yep. you mm -hmm. know the camera is moving and the model is static, or or even dealing mm -hmm. with the go motion stuff. I mean, it's really, really uh, great work. Also, notice there's like a it, to to harmonize everything. There is like a grain pass. It feels oh, more really? like a static mm. grain. It feels to me like there's like a static grain pass that was put across archival stuff um, to, to sort of harmonize the the differences in maybe mediums or, you know, graininess or whatever. It's it's over some of the stills. Like there's, you know, if you look at some of the, even some of the movie clips, like they show the clip from Raiders, like that's not what Raiders looks like, but it's fine in the, in the, it, because you've seen this harmonized even subconsciously because you guys maybe didn't pick up on it but it harmonized a lot of the b-roll i think um really nicely yeah, that's cool i, I and didn't also notice that it makes to, me want to go back and check that out <laughs> also to, to point out uh uh just to call out greg one more time uh this is greg grusby yeah greg grusby yeah, just we, my greg brother guy. and i my brother and i in february of 2020 just before all the shit hit the yep. fan we went to Skywalker Ranch to do a piece for Frame.io about David Lowry work, uh, doing audio mix on Green Knight and how he was using Frame.io for all his stuff because he's a big Frame.io fan. We've been working with David for a long time with Frame.io stuff. And, you know, it was like four people. It was me, my brother, our DP, a, a sound guy kind of guy who showed up and, and uh, the creative director from Frame.io. And Greg personally came walked us around, you know, I mean, we had met him, I had met him before with you, Mike, at the Presidio, you, you know, I think it was maybe nine years ago or something. Well, or Greg was a, ago. Greg was a flame compositor back in the day, right? Like, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Real, real skill. But, but we walked around and, and he, he took us on a tour of the main house and, you know, in the library and all that yep. stuff. And on our, and on our walk there, he corrected me on multiple visual effects show uh, things that we've said that <laughs> oh, were really? maybe maybe not which which I appreciated yeah, a sure. because he listened to it and b because you know he knows we all appreciate you know uh, all that stuff and he's he's always been really really good to yeah that's a small that was a small thing oh uh, okay. it was like his attention to just us coming to do this yeah. small thing was really appreciated well, because, you know because they have to make sure that they that the work that the artists have slaved over that the company has worked so hard to to do is presented in the best possible light and mm -hmm. is open to not just the public but to the industry because a lot of these things are industry specific not like this documentary of course hey the other thing i was going to just mention in passing is uh which made me think about this is they could have done six episodes just on skywalker ranch like oh like easily you know i mean this was like obviously industrial light and magic but like uh so intertwined in that is the both technical innovation, the quality of the team, the quality of the um, audio engineers and, and artists at Skywalker Ranch. And what an amazing place Skywalker Ranch just is, as much as the Presidio is like the most gorgeous yeah. drop dead like place anywhere. And the London office is great and all that sort of stuff. Oh I've been God. lucky enough to go to the go to the ranch three times. 
two of those times I actually was managed to have like pretty reasonable conversations with Lucas himself, which was uh, pretty amazing for just straight up nerd, you know, like <laughs> yeah. childhood dream besides just like, you know, it's cool. And having unique conversations about like technology and that we talked about the restoration process for THX that had just the director's cut that had come out. Uh, anyway, it, it's just, yeah, I mean, it, I feel I didn't never work there or had the opportunity to do any of the things that Matt did, but just having those small touchstones in my own personal, uh, I'm not trying to make this like a gushy thing, but just, you know, it meant a lot to me as a six-year-old. Yeah, sure. Catapulting me into my, <clears throat> wherever my career went willy-nilly in any direction, it it was it was started from that. So to have oh, those, be able to have those totally. moments. Absolutely. Uh, to do that was, I, I felt very privileged. I, I, I've told the story many times, like as a kid, young kid, and I'm older than you guys, I think, but as a young kid, I was... Um, queuing up to go and see Star Wars and we got into one of the early screenings but the trouble was it was you know packed and we just happened to be late into the cinema in the in the queue not for time we'd been queuing for hours and so I got a seat down the front for Star Wars in 77 <laughs> and so when that ship came overhead and just kept on coming and kept on coming I was like you know uh, my complete field of view as a kid down the front right it was like it was like some total immersion and I just thought it was the greatest thing ever and I totally draw a line from that to the rest of my life professionally. And the second thing I remember really distinctly is going back for Empire, the second film, seeing it and being heartbroken. I walked across the street to a pizza hut. There used to be a pizza hut <laughs> across the road. This is the big cinema in the city in Sydney. And I sat there almost unable to eat or do anything, not understanding how I could live the time it would take until the third film <laughs> came out. And I found out what the yeah. hell happened, right? I was like, yeah. I, you can't make me just live like this it was it was just the most visceral experience of like i can't wait to get older <laughs> well, well and i think a, here i oh i was oh, just, just gonna, gonna say, say real a, quick i was gonna share oh, my ahead. little story as a kid like yeah, i yeah, saw please. that movie i saw star wars when i was seven it came out i was 77 i was seven years old and, and uh went and saw it at the balboa theater in balboa california uh, near newport beach and it was awesome. I mean, it totally rewired my brain. I think that movie was so, so revolutionary and unlike anything anybody had ever seen at the time, but it, as a seven-year-old kid, highly impressionable. And I collected everything I could, every magazine, mm -hmm. every, you know, little thing on the, the newsstand at the drugstore or whatever that I could get my hands on. And when I learned about ILM and started seeing pictures, when they would publish pictures in magazines of the Dykstra Flex and a blue screen and the, the mm -hmm. uh, Millennium Falcon or whatever it was, or Dennis Murin and the three TIE fighters in the trench, you know, against a blue screen. Um, seeing that stuff as a kid, I was like, I started to kind of, you start to make sense of what those images are and they're so mm -hmm. interesting and so inspiring. And even as a little kid, I was like, that would be really cool. Those are the coolest toys, you know, like it's kind of the kid way of thinking about it. And that was all I ever wanted to do was work there. And like, that was, you know, why I went to college in San Francisco, because it was close to there and getting an internship mm -hmm. there was something I always wanted to do. And, you know, I feel so fortunate and so lucky to have been there at the time that I was there. And I don't regret any uh, second of it. And I and I also don't even really regret leaving. I feel like it changed the way I think it changed the way I see. And I think that the, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I, and I was going to tie it back to the documentary 
which I think is directly related to your comment, Matt, when Edlin talks about having to shoot the opening shot. And he's basically like, if this opening shot doesn't work, doesn't work the movie's yeah. dead. And he has like, how am I going to get this camera like inches, like scraping, like not even inches, like millimeters off the deck for scale of this thing. And, you know, then he's like, oh, right. I'll just turn it upside down and run it backwards. And then we'll just, and you're like, it's oh, so fuck. great. You know, and I always love how, like, well, what, what is it? Well, it's a triangle yeah. piercing the rectangle heading towards a couple <laughs> spheres in the distance. You yeah. know, like it's just, it's just really simple shapes, but yeah. like the way they're played on screen, the, the detail they add to those shapes and then the scale that they give it, like, well, it's and just a bit of unlike the, anything, you know? And a bit of that, there is in his description, a bit of the haphazard nature. He's like, well, we don't have time to build a larger model. We have this one. Yeah. So, yeah. so make me a, make me for scale purposes, a blockade runner. That's like four inches long. Yep. You know, just and add lots of detail like, to the smaller yeah. Star Destroyer mm -hmm. to make it look bigger. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's yeah, just, just so that kind of innovation and that kind of creative problem solving, you know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. what it's all about. So awesome. Yes. Well, we could, of course, spend the entire show just going on about how awesome it was um, <laughs> and how awesome every fact in figure in it was. But we don't have that and we don't have the time, unfortunately. In fact, we're out of time. But uh, look, it's been such a joy uh, talking to you guys about this today. And let's face it, like, you know, there's, yeah, it's ILM, right? It's, it's hallowed ground. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jason, if people want to uh, follow up with you and find you, where can they do that? Uh, the and our virtual production stage zero space.co. But I also want to add a quick, uh, VFX show Easter egg because I looked it up and I know I, I could time or date rather when the shoot we talked about at Kerner was because, uh, you and I, Mike went to see looper together in the theater in Marin or San okay. Rafael, uh, because we were going to do a show about it. And it's the only movie we've ever seen together. Uh, and it was 2012. <laughs> okay. Cool. Ten years ago. Great. <laughs> well, Easter egg. And, and Matt, again, you should just give a plug out to your uh, podcast. And I'm sure people would be interested if they yeah, haven't already. It's, uh, you can just go to mattwallen.com and it's, I have it set up as the homepage. The podcast is called 8111 or in the parlance of the old paging system, it's 8111. Um, and it's just the number you dial to get your outside phone call. So it's just interviews with um, people who've worked at ILM and just actually the most recent issue episode, um, my good friend and mentor uh, producer, Kim Bromley, visual effects producer, worked on things like Galaxy Quest and Hook and um, amazing uh, producer, really brilliant, uh, genius woman, uh, somebody that I've looked up to. She turned the tables on me on the show and she interviewed me, which was really fun. So Nice. Nice one. Well, look, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, and now I'm really worried that Greg's listening to this. But if he is, hi, Greg. Um, you should. Hey, Greg. And uh, and we, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully drop by soon once, uh, once we're traveling fully again. But hey, uh, it's been great uh, having you guys listen. And thank you so much for being a part of the show. And until next time, I'm just going to paraphrase Matt by just saying, yep, ILM, pretty cool. See you guys. 
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.